a privilege to be here. I uh, thank you for your singing and participation. What I'd like to do in the next four weeks is I'd like to focus on what we've just sung, grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. What is so sweet about the sound of grace? What is so special about grace? Well, we talk about, I once was lost, I now am found. I once was blind, I now can see. What's the difference between lost and found, blind and see? Is it possible that those huge differences are all because of grace? Yes. There are times in life when the definition of a word is extremely important. Some words aren't that critical, but some words are extremely important. One of those words is the definition of the word grace. What does the Bible mean when it talks about grace? We know it's a girl's name. We know it means that something good is going to happen. But what is grace? Perhaps one of the best introductions to its meaning can be seen in the parable of the prodigal son. This story appears in a context that contrasts grace with law. Jesus is talking to Pharisees, and the Pharisees are grumbling because Jesus is eating at the wrong restaurant. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. I want you to notice Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, the beginning of the chapter. It starts this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and even eats with them. So he told them this parable. The parable has three parts, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Each part is explaining to the Pharisees why Jesus has chosen to eat with these bad people. Each part contrasts the Pharisees' do-it-yourself kind of religion and God's grace. The third part is the story of the prodigal son and his elder brother and the response of the father to each. The prodigal represents sinners and tax collectors. Notice the combination of sinners and tax collectors. IRS, sinners, same category. You might want to ask why. Actually, I'm kidding. The elder son represents the, the Pharisees. And Jesus is using this story to invite the Pharisees to come and to experience grace by joining this celebration that has started for the prodigal son. The point of the story focuses on the younger son, who one day felt that it was an appropriate moment to demand his share of the inheritance from his father. 
His father obliges, he packs up, leaves the family to go to a distant country and experience real life. He finally has his dream. Life the way he wants it. No more farm chores, no more people telling him what to do. It is now party time. Wasn't long before he had blown through the inheritance and was absolutely bankrupt. Of course, at that time, a severe famine came. And in verse 16, it says, no one gave him anything. All of a sudden, he was introduced to the world. Nobody cared. He winds up as a Jewish lad working in a pig pen, drooling over the pig's pods. Pig pens can be educational. And the lad's life was changed, and he returned to his father. When he returned home, he received what he had never expected. Far beyond what he could have dreamed, he received grace. The way Jesus tells this story helps us understand what grace is. So let me point out quickly three features of this grace. Three features of grace. Number one, grace is a gift. And by definition, a gift cannot be purchased. A gift must be free. You ever experience giving somebody a valuable gift, and then three weeks later you come to the realization that they're trying to pay you back for it? What does that do to you? It causes you to ask questions. It causes you to ask questions about your relationship. It causes you to be sort of insulted. Ask questions about them. Why did the father not throw a celebration for his son before he left? Why did he not throw a celebration for the elder son? And the answer is that something happened to his son in the pig pen that had not happened to him before or had not happened to his elder brother. What was it? The prodigal came to the realization that he had nothing. Zero. So he came back to the father with nothing. He couldn't buy anything, couldn't purchase anything, had no leverage with his father. He'd lost it all. He woke up to that in the pig pen. The elder son, on the other hand, said to the father, this is verse 29, I never disobeyed your command. That's Pharisee talk. They were buying their way in by their performance. I am obeying every single one of your commands. Pay me. They didn't understand that their performance was as bad as the tax collectors and the sinners. And that they were spiritually bankrupt. See, the problem in grace is not with the giver. The problem in grace is with the receiver. Here's Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. These are very important verses. Now, the one who works, now to the one who works, 
His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, as soon as a person says to God, I'll pay you. I'll be better. I'll turn over a new leaf. I'll quit beating my husband. I'll I'll get baptized. See, as soon as a person says that to God, then God, the righteous judge, says, Okay, I'll reward you according to what you've earned. So then the transaction is one of what is due the person. You're going to pay me? I'll, I'll reward you according to what you've paid. Grace has to come only when a person has nothing to offer. It has to be absolutely free. Now, we have trouble with this statement, absolutely free. We don't really believe absolutely free. And it's probably because you have received the same letter I have received. Letters, plural. A letter like this. Dear Mr. Shupi, your name has been selected from more than 100,000 people living in your area to receive one of the following prizes. A one-week, all-expenses-paid trip to Hawaii. Number two, a Chevy Corvette. Number three, a 39-foot cigarette speedboat. Number four, a $20,000 CD. Number five, eight exquisite designer drinking glasses. (laughs) Yes, Mr. Shupi, one of these fabulous prizes is already yours, absolutely free. All you have to do is come to the address listed below to claim your prize. Hardly takes a detective to figure out what I've won. But since there's always the slimmest chance that I might have actually won the big one, I go down to the address and claim my drinking glasses. (laughs) And a persuasive salesman very nearly sells me three acres of wilderness above the Arctic Circle in a timeshare program called Igloo Acres. After a few of these winning letters, we quit. Why? Because free doesn't mean free. There's nothing free in this life. There's always a catch to it. You know? And so when we come to Scripture and we get to Isaiah, for example, chapter 55, that says, Come, And buy wine and milk without money, without price, it's free. Our response is, yeah. What's the catch? Ever been there? Free. What do you want? That's why the pig pen was so valuable for the prodigal. You see, the reason why grace has to be free is because we actually have nothing. And everything we think we have that we can pay God with is worthless. See, the pig pen pen introduced the prodigal to the effect of his sin. He thought, I'm going to enjoy the party life. And what the party life did and what his sin did is it 
took everything away from him. So that he wound up and he realized he had nothing. It is so easy, especially for young people, those under 60, to look at to look at those pictures and those videos of people enjoying their sin and saying, you know, yeah, that's really where life is. You don't see very many videos or pictures of people after they have the full of their sin, after they're filled up with their sin. I sat at the bedside of a Baptist deacon who had spent 30, uh, 65 years smoking. He, was, he had terminal emphysema, died shortly thereafter, and I just watched him gasping for air. It was an awful sight. You know, he would breathe in, his eyes would get big, and he would be thinking in terms of, can I get enough air to live? You know what he wanted? wanted another cigarette. He asked me for a cigarette. Dying of the effects of what he chose to do, and yet he wanted another one. The problem is most people don't see the ultimate effects of their sin until it's too late, until they wasted their entire life, got locked into the chains of sin, but the prodigal woke up before he was at death's door. Realized he had lost it all. It was completely gone. He had nothing with which he could offer his father. Every person who comes to God must come this way with nothing. You come to God for salvation. You come to God with nothing to offer him. You come to God after salvation because you need wisdom. You come with nothing to offer him. You come to God because you need strength. You come to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. Come boldly to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help. You come with nothing. This is a very extremely important point. Every molecule of human earning has to be set aside in order to receive grace. Maybe this is why grace operates so much more clearly in the pig pen, maybe in a prison, gospel mission, hopeless situations. These are people who understand that they come to God empty-handedly, empty-handedly. Number two, number two, feature number one, grace is a gift, and by definition, a gift cannot be earned. Number two, grace is a gift, and by definition, a gift cannot be deserved. Deserved. Earlier, the prodigal thought he deserved his father's money. Since the money belonged to him, he could do with it what he wanted. There are people like that who think that God's grace belongs to them. It may be because of who they are, how much better they are than others. But a gift ignores what a person deserves. Now, the difference between feature number two and feature number one Feature number one talks about what I can do. I can earn it. Feature number two talks about who I am. When John the Baptist came and said, repent, the people were saying, we're sons of Abraham. See, we deserve 
We don't have to repent. We deserve. Grace is not given because of what people deserve. The difficulty with Americans is that we grow up with this attitude of fairness. And we think that grace ought to be fair. We compare ourselves. We think of others who deserve less. We know we deserve more, you know. We ask questions like, how could Adolf Hitler ever be saved? That man deserves nothing but hell. Absolutely. So do I. So do you. We don't ever say, how could Mother Teresa ever be saved? She deserves nothing but hell. No? See, the point in Scripture is that every single person has nothing with which to recommend themselves. We don't see ourselves as dead in trespasses and sins. See, the prodigal came to this realization when he was in the pig pen. And he says in verses 18 and 19, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. No longer worthy. I don't deserve anything. I have no merit that I can claim. But we have the ability to adjust this word dead. Dead in trespasses in sins. We don't accept that idea. We don't like the idea of not quite dead yet. God's grace makes up the difference. You know, it's an attitude that says, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I have done wrong. Yes, I'm I'm in need, even great need. But I would not describe myself as dead. There are people who are, those are people who are depraved, who are pagan. I'm not dead. We compare ourselves with Adolf and say, I'm not that bad. I've never killed a person. I've never killed 100 people, much less 6 million. I do need help, but not like Adolf. What I really need is for God to make up the difference in my life. I need God to fix my problems. What I basically need is supplements. Spiritual vitamins from God. You know? I'm okay. I'm worth something. Just fix me. Give me something. Vitamins. Here's the truth. The truth is that grace stands in direct opposition to any supposed worthiness on our part. Grace and merit are mutually exclusive. This is why grace works in hospitals, in prisons. Dead means that you are as capable of pleasing God as a a dead person is capable of beating you in racquetball. But instead, we redefine the word. You know, we are good at redefining the words. Let me give you an example. Redefining the word dead. The tribal wisdom of the Dakota Indians passed on from generation to generation says that when you discover that you're riding a dead horse... The best strategy is to dismount. 
okay? Tribal wisdom. But we have improved on that today, okay? Government policy, you know, bureaucrats can improve on that. And here are some suggested improvements, okay? Strategic responses. Let's provide additional funding to increase the dead horse's performance. Or let's harness several dead horses together to increase their speed. Or let's do a productivity study to see if lighter riders would improve the dead horse's performance. Or let's rewrite the expected performance requirements for all horses so that dead horses can be included. Doesn't that fit today? Or let's reclassify dead horses as living impaired. Isn't that what we do? Hoping that a little verbal manipulation will get God to reclassify us. So we got a little merit in his sight. It was only in the pig pen that our prodigal realized for the first time that he was dead. And this is the doorstep that every person comes to before they receive grace. Grace works with people who have no merit, who deserve nothing. Look at the difference in the prayers between the two men in Luke 18. One prays well and rehearses his resume. He says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like these other guys. You know, I do all this good stuff. And the publican beat on his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. How is it that you can have, in some places, not here, in some places you can have a church full of people who talk as if they're Christians And yet they don't have a real relationship with Christ. How is it you can have people who talk the talk and have never experienced grace? They pray like the Pharisee rather than the publican. They may have grown up in a Christian family. They may have gone to a Christian school. They're familiar with all the Christian logo, lingo, know how to act. They think they're in. After all, they've never murdered anyone. They've never had sex outside marriage. They never cheated on their income tax. They deserve heaven. And they will be quite surprised if they don't get it. The sad thing is that with that attitude, they will never meet grace. They have to see themselves in the pig pen as they really are, rather than with the false image they've created of themselves with their heavenly father's money. You may turn over a new leaf. You may do all you can do to improve yourself, to merit something from God. But God's grace is only available for those who recognize their unworthiness. Number three, grace is a gift. And by definition, a gift cannot be required. It must be received. Here's the difference between the prodigal and his elder brother. The father did not make the elder brother take his grace any more than he made the younger son take his grace. 
Why did the elder brother not receive grace? One reason. Verse 28. He was angry and refused to go in. He was angry and refused to go in. Even though the elder brother was only out in the field, he was really further away from his father than the prodigal was. I want you to notice the contrast between what these two boys received. I think I've got time for this. I'll try to squeeze it in. First of all, the prodigal received amazing grace. Amazing grace. First thing he saw as he came back home was a man running at him, which was an embarrassing thing for an older man. Then he gets hugged and kissed by this man before he takes a bath. In those days, a kiss was a pledge of reconciliation and peace. Before the prodigal could say anything, he was attacked by this gracious man. After the prodigal starts his prepared speech, he's interrupted by his father, who starts shouting commands to the servants. Bring quickly a robe. Robe indicated status. I want a ring. To indicate authority, the ring was the family credit card where you could stamp the name. Bring shoes. Shoes indicated position. Nobody wore shoes in the house except the master. Shoes were position. What in the world did this boy think as he realized the implications of these commands? Here's a man he's run away with, run away from. Here's, here's a man he's wasted half his savings. And this man is giving him status and authority and position. And then the father commands the servants to kill a fattened calf, an animal specially kept and fed to be slaughtered only on special occasions when an honored guest comes. And it was the fattened calf. There was only one. The special calf for honored guests. And then the father said, this boy's hungry. Let's eat. And let's celebrate. Have you ever met that kind of grace? That is unbelievable grace. That's amazing. Have you ever met a God who has given you way beyond anything you have ever even thought possible? Grace. Let's talk about what the older son experienced. He received entreaty. Verse 31, the father said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours? All that is mine is yours? Think about that. God's saying to someone, all that is mine is yours. That's really what his actions said to the younger son, to the prodigal. But the elder son had zero interest. Look at verse 29. He has a bad attitude. 
He says to his father, look, verse 29, it's an attitude of disrespect. These many years I have served you. I have been a slave. I never disobeyed your command. You've been blind to my righteousness. I have been a good boy. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You have no love for me. You really have been unfair. But when this son of yours, I had nothing to do with it. You didn't really raise him right. When this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You don't understand, Father, repentance. You haven't given him time to prove himself. You don't even know how this works. You assume he's repentant. You're going through this friendly forgiveness stuff in hopes that something has happened, but you don't know the deviousness of the human heart. Old man. Can you imagine taking that kind of stuff? Any of you taking that kind of stuff? You know? This is part of raising kids. But here is somebody who is completely blind to grace. Knows nothing about grace and refuses grace. And Jesus, through this elder son, is talking to the Pharisees. Did the elder son ever come into the house? We don't know. The Pharisees ever received grace? We don't know. Most of them were involved in hanging him on the cross. So this one question as I close. Why would the elder son not want this grace? Why would anybody not want this grace? Answer? Pride? Self-centeredness? Got it all figured out? They know how much worth they are? Blindness? Unwillingness to listen and humble themselves? So have you ever experienced this grace? An amazing gift of forgiveness of sins, new life, becoming a son or daughter of God himself. The gift of the Holy Spirit. It comes to, John says, as many as received him. You this morning can turn to him with nothing in your hands, with nothing to offer him, with nothing to negotiate with, and ask for grace. He has promised he will forgive you, he will cleanse you, he will make you his child. If you come as the prodigal did. So grace cannot be purchased, it can't be merited, it can only be received. So why you come to Jesus is so important. You can come because he owes you something. You can come for salvation because you're good enough. Or you can come like a beggar to receive his grace. 
If you've never trusted Christ, I would encourage you to do that this morning. If you'd like to talk to somebody, I'd be happy to talk to you. Feel free to call me this week if you'd like to receive Jesus Christ. I would be happy to help you because you don't want to miss grace. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to think in terms of your amazing grace. And I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts to introduce our Introduce us to yourself in a new way. May we come to understand the Father and the way he treated both of these sons and realize that we are in one place or the other. And I ask that you, by the Spirit of God, would minister in each one of our hearts. We thank you, Father, for amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.